Welcome back to our podcast, More Than a Game, and welcome back to Don, who, as well as being the original publisher of the novel, More Than a Game, worked in Wolverhampton as a voluntary youth worker in the 70s and 80s, and was a co-founder of the AFMA Youth Organization, a role that brought him into the contact with members of the legal system, local counselors, police, and young people from some of the more socially and economically disadvantaged parts of the city. So the theme we'll be covering here today will be crime, scams, and the sus laws. Like all time periods, there are scams that pertain to any given community. The book touches on various such scams that existed in the Black communities in the 80s, and today we'll be discussing the effects of such scams and the laws that were introduced, aimed directly at the Black community. Let me begin by reading a short excerpt from the book, and then one of you can jump right in. While driving to the car dealers, Mervyn Palmer came across an example of low-key policing for which the West Midlands force was well known. Low-key policing in Whitmore Rains took the shape of four large white vans patrolling the quiet streets at 10 miles per hour, with grills on the outside windows and a dozen frazzled cops inside each of them. Wolverhampton cops had a reputation for making evenings out for black men a disagreeable experience, whether they were in a car or on foot. Back then, black guys had no need for skydiving or bungee jumping to get an adrenaline kick. All a black man had to do for adventure was to try and make it to a club for the night. When outnumbered and confronted by aggressive cops, the best means of defense was usually a sub-10-second, 100-meter sprint. Hence, it was argued why there were so many black sprinters representing Britain. It wasn't to do with the twitch fibers or any genetics. It was down to practice. So, Don, as a former youth worker who used sports as a means to engage young people, could you identify with Horace McIntosh, the football coach in the novel? Almost certainly, particularly when he was having trouble trying to get a team together. First off, Femme uh, was trying to get young black women involved uh, through sport, into literacy and uh, careers, uh, career advice modules. Uh, so we actually set up a netball team. But as they got popular, uh, young, young men used to come around just to watch them play for various reasons. Uh, we then started to have five-a-side football uh, table tennis teams and badminton teams. So we use that sport primarily to to get people, young people involved first, and then we'd introduce them to literary projects or career, as I've just previously mentioned, career advice, things like that. Something to help them out to progress a little bit. And um, certainly some of the trials and tribulations Horace went through because there were times when we literally, a bit like in the book, we were driving around trying to find enough people to make up the team. So I, I did smile a lot of times uh, when reading the, the novel. So, yeah. But I think uh, the other thing about Horace, which I noticed, is was uh, his interactions with the police. And as youth workers, we often got pulled into that. I have to say, the West Midlands Police uh, rightly were criticised for a lot of their actions. Well, within the force, there were some very decent people. And I, I met several officers that were well-intentioned, good and honourable people. Unfortunately, um, they were involved in a, a time and within a culture that made it very difficult for them to stick their head above the parapet. There was a kind of canteen culture, the stick-together culture, no matter what was going on. And so as we progressed as an organisation, certainly people who are members would come and tell us about certain interactions they'd had with police. And then we try and intervene if possible and try and sort things out. That wasn't always possible. Certainly during the reading of the novel, I, I definitely identified with Paul Horace. Uh, mm -hmm. and 
that's probably why I have very little hair today. I pulled a lot of it out during my, my young years. <laughs> <laughs> makes sense, makes sense. So I've heard all of you guys discussing the sus laws with disdain. Can someone explain to me what the sus laws were and how did they influence the community back then? The sus law is from Section 4 of the 1824 Vagrancy Act, which gave police officers the, the discretionary power to arrest anyone they suspected of loitering with intent to commit an arrestable offence. It's a survival from a much earlier period of social upheaval following the mass demobilisation of soldiers after the Napoleonic Wars. It was redeployed intensively from the, from the 60s onwards against young black men in Britain. They could be arrested, charged and convicted simply for walking down the street. This effectively permitted the police to stop and search and even arrest anyone found in a public place if they suspected that they intended to commit an offence. In order to bring a prosecution under the Act, the police had to prove that the defendant had committed two acts. The first, that established them as a suspected person by acting suspiciously, and the second, that provided intent to commit an arrestable offence. Two witnesses were required to substantiate the charge, usually two police officers patrolling together. What's confusing, right, is that the laws themselves, especially the, uh, the prosecution, is at the end game. But what about all the thousands and thousands and thousands of people, right, they stopped with no intention of arresting them, just to harass them. Now, I know I've been stopped on many occasions as a kid and thrown against the wall by the cops, okay, just for walking down the street early in the morning or later on in the evening. Such a thing, right, such an event which they used to do, right, create such a stigma in society where there's no way they're going to uh, gain the, the respect of the black community, not when they're going on like that. Well, the, yeah. sus, the sus law was, was acutely felt in a post-Powell climate of escalating popular racism, ranging from everyday intimidation to ruthless murder. The relationship between the street and the state was clarified during events like the Battle of Lewisham in August 1977. The National Front chose to march through Lewisham because it was a key site of organised resistance to racist policing. During the march, police protected National Front members, but confronted the mixed anti-fascist crowd with cavalry and riot shield for the first time on mainland Britain. Yeah, I know. As I just alluded to earlier on as well, right, the effect uh, of such negative policing have on everyday common people. Uh, sometimes you have to wonder, average, normal, let's say white person on the street, what sort of a, a impression is giving them of ordinary black people. So it was little wonder that so many black people, right, got stopped in shops for suspecting of, you know, wanted to steal something or uh, suspected of stealing credit cards, etc. Because the antics of the society, it formulated the thoughts of regular ordinary people. I've got a cousin who from Wolverhampton who got arrested in Birmingham because of such uh, thoughts going through the head of the average person. He was thought to have stolen a credit card, which in effect was his own credit card. The person who suspected him of stealing the card was the regular shop owner, or regular shopkeeper, okay? And obviously he wasn't allowed to purchase whatever he wanted to purchase from this shop, which coincidentally was yeah. just a dress in which he wanted to buy for his sister. So he was handing back the credit card. He had left the shop, headed back to Wolverhampton, which is many miles away, as you well know. Uh, in the meantime, Birmingham Police Station phoned Wolverhampton 
police squads and indicated that someone was trying to use a stolen credit card. Now, this may have been misinterpreted by the two police stations because the Wolverhampton police station went to his house, where at the time he lived with his mother and father. And again, due to some confusion, they tried to arrest his father, who indicated that the name on the credit card was his son and the card was not stolen. So they couldn't go through with that particular arrest. Now, all this time, uh, my cousin was unaware that this was happening to his parents back in Wolverhampton. When he got back, they explained to him what had happened. So good citizens they are, they decided to drive over to Birmingham the following day. Okay. No, they, they, they went to Birmingham New Road Police Station, Ralph. They went to the Wolverhampton Police Station. I and they, went back they arrested to him there, and then they transferred him to Birmingham later. Well, night, I think they arrested him in Birmingham. No, no, no. No, he just went up to Birmingham New Road Police Station. Oh, that was in it. When he went to Wolverhampton yeah. Police Station, how did they get him to Birmingham without arresting him? They arrested him in, in Birmingham New Road Police Station on suspicion. And when they got him to Birmingham, the custody sergeant looked at it and looked at his credit card. And he'd, he'd already bought proof, a bank statement to say it was his. You know where the, you know where the confusion came in? Birmingham New Road Police Station. You think of Birmingham, it's not Wolverhampton. So when, when he got back to Wolverhampton, uh, him and his parents, being good citizens they are, decided to go to the Wolverhampton police station to explain what had happened. On March, on walking into the police station, he was arrested and transferred to Birmingham because the crime, or not suspected crime, of using his credit card happened in Birmingham. Once he got there, the, the uh, police in, ch in charge, uh, duty sergeant, whatever it's called, decided that he could not proceed with this because his name is on the card. Obviously, the card was not stolen. By the time he got to Birmingham, it's in the middle of the night. They couldn't arrest him, so they had to let him go. He's stranded in the middle of Birmingham because the police will not take him back to Wolverhampton because we're crossing boundary lines. So he had to find his own way in the middle of the night back to Wolverhampton. How he got back, who knows? It's these little things like that, right, which nobody... Uh, Think about just because of the way people was uh, treated at the time by the police, that escalates into into riots, into social upheaval because they've been treated as second-class citizens all the time. Well, it's crazy because to for me, when I think of police, the prime uh, function of the police is to de-escalate a situation. Can they? Could they not see that this was escalating the anger and the violence and the rioting and everything? Like, why oh, wouldn't they not to? They don't do that because it's, they perceive, they go to the angle of you being guilty before they even consider you being innocent. So they go in with guns blazing to just to snatch, arrest, and then sort it out later. They don't do all the, uh, the dialogue with beforehand. It's all done afterwards, which is reverse of what it should be. Yes, makes sense. Yeah. Now I understand that uh, they were, they were going to take, they were going to take legal action because of what they went through to the police. And if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Don, did they not contact you? Yeah, yeah. In, for you to give them some advice and to help because yeah. you were so yeah. prominent in the uh, in the uh, society at the time, in the community at the time. Yeah. Well, what it, what happened, Ralph, was because we were youth workers. I was also an active member of the Labour Party, and within there, there was a a solicitor who had a good record. Uh, he's a member of my constituency party, uh, taking action against the police. And he helped out from time to time. And uh, your cousin and his parents came out to my house, to tell, very upset to tell me what had happened and what could be done. So I, I referred them to 
this solicitor, friend of mine, and a complaint was filed. Now, the twist in the tale, unfortunately, was your cousin, as you know, worked as a security man at a hotel. And some months later, he, the hotel manager had seen on CCTV somebody actually stealing a video recorder from one of the rooms and alerted your cousin to intercept him. By the time he got to the guy stealing the video, they were out in the road and your cousin called for him to stop. Your man stopped, dropped the video, threw a punch. Your cousin, as you know, used to box for England at schoolboy level. He ducked, he punched the man, knocked him clean out. The police had been called at this time because the manager had alerted the police that a burglary was in progress. And so your cousin was detaining the man. But when the police turned up, they not only arrested the burglar, they arrested your cousin and put him in a cell. And what happened then was told to me directly by your cousin was he was sitting in a cell uh, and a detective walked in with two pieces of paper. One was his complaint. Another was for a charge of grievous bodily harm. And the detective asked, how should they proceed? Your cousin said, what do you mean? He says, well, we can tear these two things up, meaning if you drop your complaint, we don't charge you. I think it was grievous bodily harm with intent, which is just quite a very serious charge. He carries a long sentence. He had no access to a lawyer at the time. He was a young man. He consented for the complaint to be withdrawn. And I heard from that because his mother then came round to my house and very, very angry and very upset with what had happened. But by that time, he'd withdrawn the complaint. But I, I, just as a side note, and you just mentioned about how these things have ramifications. Sometime later, a young man was killed during arrest in Wolverhampton, allegedly, again, using a stolen credit card. This was never proven. And uh, it did polarise the city for some quite some time. And there was a, a riot. There were attacks on uh, two of my colleagues in the Labour Party. You may say, well, why did that happen? I'll get to that in a minute. As well as police stations. And uh, it really got quite nasty for quite some time. And, the, and of course, that affects everybody. I, I saw it within the youth group myself. People get polarised. They didn't want anything to do with the police. Uh, and this is where, you know, again, I refer to Horace in the book. Uh, when there's almost a riot and he, he steps in his peacemaking. You do that at your peril because you, you're then seen as a collaborator in trying to calm the situation down because the extremes take over. So you're either with us or against us. And the middle gets squeezed into silence. Well, the thing is about the SUS law, it was a key mechanism in the, in the racialization of urban space, maintaining the whiteness of certain areas and policing the blackness yeah. of others. It was very yeah. difficult to defend yourself against the sus charge. It was your word versus whoever arrested you. And yeah. it was enough simply to be black and in the wrong place at the wrong time. I know. I understand, I understand what you're saying. I'm with you all, growing up in Brampton as well, I knew all the, who all the bad police were. And I knew by sight. And you knew who all the good ones were. Okay, those in which you could actually have a conversation with, uh, report stuff to. But because of the political climate at the time and the way you view the police on a whole, you just kept away from them. You kept kept away. And now this that's also brought to another theory in my own head. It's only my own theory, my own personal opinion. So it may not mean shit. Okay, today very often you hear of. Uh, gang violence, gang on gang violence over territory or whatever. I personally don't believe it is always 
gang on gang. I know quite a few people like myself, live with lower abiding, who had small children grown up in, in society. And I knew and I've heard of gang drug dealers selling drugs outside of schools or hanging around outside schools, which your kid goes to. I suspect that many lower abiding people, because of the relationship they have with the police or the reputation of the police in the society at the time, they will not go to the police, right, to confront those people who are selling drugs. And very often, some of the people who are selling drugs, right, were police informers in which the police, right, would turn a blind eye to, right? Now, I suspect that some of these uh, gang on gang shooting is just regular, hardworking people with small children in the community that they know that their kid is being approached by these uh, drug dealers or whatever they're going to go out and they're going to take laws into their own hand okay yeah they're going to put these guys under well, well we, yeah we, we did know uh, a, a guy ralph very similar to what you were saying uh, and he was actually confronted by two two criminals two two drug dealers who, who drew knives knives on him and he was a handy guy he managed to disarm them the two criminals happened to be white in this case ended up being stabbed and having a spleen removed in one case and rather than he being believed and despite these two guys having a criminal record as long as both our arms and he having absolutely no criminal convictions at all he was the one that was arrested he wasn't believed that this was in self-defense mm. and he ended up in, in court and almost went to prison for a very long time. Uh, and this happened so many times, unfortunately, uh, that it, it seemed that the, not only the police were not dealing with uh, people of color fairly, but also the, the legal system once they got involved, because it, it seemed quite obvious to everybody who, was, who knew of the case and who knew of this man's attackers, uh, this man was only defending himself. And uh, consequently, a lot of people just, Stop even trusting solicitors and lawyers. You know, they, they didn't trust them to, de to defend them. What I would say, what I wanted to say originally about your cousin's case, and I discussed this with his parents, about the racism within the West Midlands Police Force. And I said, well, you know, hang on a second. Just look to the person who rang the police originally. What was in the shop assistant's mind that she couldn't get around the fact that a black man had a, a credit card? Unfortunately, and... I brought this up in several meetings with police officers I talk with, that if you've got somebody, a, a new recruit to the police who is 19, 20, 21 years of age, maybe for 15 years of their lives, they've been barred with fairly negative images or very negative images of black people, particularly black men in the British media and in the press. And they would readily believe this, your, people like your cousin was up to no good because of all the, the, the mind conditioning that has happened before there. And I, I used to say, what goes on within police training to kind of rectify this train of thought that if you're black, you, you're immediately suspect. And, and this was an issue, and I think it was an issue regarding to the, the case in Wolverhampton, where, again, no good reason except that this young man was black who offered a credit card as in payment. And of course, this led to more tragic circumstances than your cousin. In fact, he died during the arrest because he obviously struggled. You know, he, he objected to actually even being detained. And so, but, and I often had an issue with things like the McPherson Trust calling the Met institutionally racist. It probably is, but it's society. I mean, the police are, ref, are a reflection of what goes on in society. 
they're not something different from society. They are members of society. And all the unconscious bias, all the subliminal negative messages that went on for many years within the press, I think it, hopefully it's changing now. But we're talking of a time in the, in the early 80s when your, your book uh, was set. Uh, you know, th this was unfortunate, the hostile atmosphere people had to try and operate within. And of course, when you're treated with such hostility, it's very, very difficult not to respond with hostility. Yeah. And uh, as youth workers, this is often what we try to, to do is to defuse the situation. But we were fighting a losing battle in a lot of the cases. And of course, Wolverhampton was a peculiar town because we had the legacy of Enoch Powell. Yeah. A bit like what's happening in Trump's America, it, a lot of his speeches were directed to the base insecurities of a lot of the white population within the town, that their jobs were being stolen or they were being economically disadvantaged because of the presence of brown and black people within the town. Uh, and of course, that's spilt over. And you, you're going to have people growing up within that, you know, as youngsters and going through school and then deciding maybe they want a career in the police. What was ever done to try and disavow them? of these sort of negative thoughts. Maybe in today's piece, they, they're trying to deal with things like unconscious bias and racial stereotyping. I, I really don't know. What, what, what made the matters worse in a lot of cases as well is in particular times of uh, disturbances, the police was brought in from outside the community. So they had no idea of, of uh, policing in the cities of forced from the rural white areas into the inner cities and hoping that they could understand the grievances and police the people. It just did not work. Obviously, if a situation like that, it's just going to erupt into a, into a riot. I also seen the police, right, on first hand, do some good things. I also seen them do some very bad things uh, to other white people. Now, there's an area in Wolverhampton not too far from where we were called uh, Low Hill, which was mainly white, but the lower but of a lower social economical class. Okay? Now, I spoke to a few people from that area, and they used to go through similar situation with the SUS laws, but mainly on the border of, the, uh, of that area in which they live. In other words, right, whereas being black, you'd be, you stand out, you'd be stopped anywhere, okay? These guys, right, from that area were stopped, especially if they're driving the car, trying to get into that area. I'm sure that you've heard of uh, situations like that yourself. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, I, I, I actually grew up in Lowell from the age of five till I was about 20, 21, 22. And I, I, I was getting stopped by the police all the time. In fact, once I used to get a, a squad car behind me, I used to just pull over because it was the routine and produce my license and my insurance and the MOT. Because if they saw you driving into certain areas, as a kid from Low Hill, they just expect you not to have car insurance or car tax or whatever. I suppose if we were playing the numbers game, maybe it was the case that it was more likely than not, coming from a, a, a poor area, that you wouldn't probably have these things where if you were in a, a more affluent part of the town, more likely daddy and mommy would provide all these things for you. So, and of course, that did cause uh, some alienation uh, in, in, our, in our street, which was a totally white working class area. There used to be what they called the Black Mariah parked at the end of the road because there'd be disturbances every night at one time. It went on for quite a few years in what we called skinhead gangs. And if they weren't fighting one another, they, they'd be then looking to fight the police who were parked at the end of the road. So, I mean, this sort of alienation, um, 
I think I had a, a previous discussion and I said the whole point, uh, probably the problematic thing about how the police force was set up, it was to protect the property rights of the wealthy. It wasn't to protect human rights of every citizen. It wasn't a rights-based police force. They're calling it police service these days, but they used to call it police force. And it was basically set up to protect the landed gentry from the peasantry who uh, probably wanted to go in and steal their stuff to, to just to, to, to eat. And you, you saw that in the, the legal system where you literally could be hanged for the stealing of livestock you know, a sheep or things like that, or transported to Australia. So you had this sort of fear that was the base of setting up a police force. It was a fear of those who had. They feared those who had not. And of course, as immigrants, first it was Irish and Italian, whoever, we start off at the low rungs of the ladder. We don't have much access to credit and things like that. And then, of course, but as black people or brown people, you're more identifiable as newcomers, as they used to call them, to... British shores and then the offspring of the new commons and of course because there was that sort of again that sort of mindset that the poorer people are more likely to steal uh, you know of course in areas like uh, Low Hill the, the policing was quite heavy but again you see when people like me could walk into the town centre and not be molested it was only when you were around Low Hill that you, you risked being stopped by the police but see because I you know I was a white lad not identified as maybe a suspect in any crime, but you know yourself, Rap, you couldn't do, you, you didn't have the same freedom as I would have walking in the centre, walking into, still just by the colour of your skin, but we had similar backgrounds, immigrant family, et cetera, et cetera, roughly the same age, and yet your skin colour would always change the experience that you would have in interacting with the police at the time. I kind of feel like we almost expect that when someone puts on a uniform, whether it's police, doctor, teacher, whatever, that all their bias and their personal beliefs and their race, whatever it is, is going to disappear. But it's not going to disappear. You're a person oh. first, and then you're an officer second. In my mind. God bless, God bless you. <laughs> I mean, if, if, that, if that was only so... Well, it's true. You are a, you're a human first before you become a police officer. Oh, right? yeah, and if and if you're a human with bias and yeah. prejudice, or, which everyone has, you're but gonna unfortunately that way. Whatever uniform you put on. Well, there was a long, bitter struggle to scraps us, which involved uh, a broad coalition of black groups and lawyers which was resisted by both Labour and Conservative governments. But effective campaigning forced the issue onto the government's agenda. And by 1980, the Select Committee on Home Affairs would recommend immediate repeal, which was achieved in 1981. Brings it right into that period that, that the book is set in. The, un, the anti-police uprisings of that year, beginning in Brixton on the 10th of April, gave repeal an added urgency. But this was reform, not transformation. In his state-commissioned inquiry into the Brixton uprising, Lord Scarman conceded that the mass sus operation that triggered it, Operation Swamp 81, was unwise. The 1981 Criminal Attempts Act, which repealed sus, was succeeded in 1984 by the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, PACE, which in effect reinstated it as stop and search. The proviso of reasonable suspicion was ineffectual. Stop and search was expanded later in section 60 of the 1994 Criminal Justice and Public Order Act, 
which introduced targeted emergency powers. In 1999, McPherson recommended a series of regulatory mechanisms, but did not fundamentally question the practice itself. A year later, Section 44 of the Terrorism Act legitimized racially profiled stop and searches. And although it was ruled illegal on human rights grounds in 2010, Section 60 continues to be rolled out to this day. The book itself is based around a scam that I'm not going to get into for the sake of those who haven't yet read the book. The presence of crime was always lingering in the background of the novel. In just a minute, I'll read an excerpt, but can you explain to me what a partnership is? A partnership is a popular form of saving system in Jamaica, which is called by many different names elsewhere in the Caribbean and is also found in many other parts of the world. It's often described as a form of capital accumulation. A partner is basically a partnership among people to save collectively. Usually an established member of a community manages the partnership and is referred to as the banker. Often the banker is a woman. The partners contribute a regular, some daily, weekly, fortnightly or monthly, and every day, week, fortnightly or monthly, one member of the partnership receives the total amount contributed by the partners over that period, less the equivalent of one contribution, which is given to the banker as payment for the banker's services. The banker determines the order in which members can make their draw and will normally give the priority to the more established and trusted members leaving those who are least reliable till the last. An early withdrawal is effectively equivalent to a loan, and there is often a confusion as to whether the partner is a savings or loan system for this reason. The longest partners rarely exceed six months. Partners are recognized in the Jamaican courts, and there are accounts of members who have failed to pay their contribution being taken successfully to court. Attitudes towards the system are, however, mixed. Many people like the system because it gives them quick access to ready cash and in emergency situations, they can make an early withdrawal, providing, of course, that they are trusted by the banker. It is also the only system available to a large number of the poor. Others made their money by selling and buying all sorts of stuff that wasn't always legal. For Courtney's youngest brother, Patrick, the nicking of car radios progressed to the stealing of TVs and videos by RAM rating which was a very common line of business in the early 80s. For those who aren't aware of the methods used in such operation, it involved a car, usually, but not always stolen, a pair of ramps, and then the maneuvering of the vehicle up the ramps at a high speed and through the protective screen and plate glass window of an electrical store. The occupants then jumped out and loaded as much gear as they could into the boot before making their getaway. Now, more professional gangs used a van and put up a road close sign at the end of the street so they had more time to break into the stockroom rather than just gather up the goods on show. Now, these guys wouldn't have been robbing if no one was buying. Black, white, brown, they were never short of customers. My parents used to belong to uh, such a system that was run by uh, my mom's sister. And I could remember, right, uh, them paying in regularly. And when it was their turn to collect, as they say, she would use the money acquired, right, to put as a down payment for something like a washing machine or something which they couldn't afford out, outright, which was I thought. I didn't understand how it worked at the time, but to me, it was a fantastic idea. But I had heard of other situations where it went terribly wrong, where somebody had scammed and took off. 
with the money. That's and on a few occasions, I've seen people going around to the house armed in machetes, trying to find this particular person who is long gone, you know? So it's got its, it's, got its, its benefits, it's also got its, uh, uh, its uh, disadvantages, and especially when it comes to easy access to money. Someone, someone can just run off with the money. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we saw Donald Trust, wasn't it? And I think that, that was a great thing about it. I mean, I, I did learn of the part. I was never because I was a member of that community, but I did learn of it. But I, I did hear several tales, obviously it comes through, where people had used their partnership money to invest their, their, their draw, as they called it, into what were blatant scams. Some were these pyramid selling things because they just thought, well, when I get the money back from this pyramid selling scheme, I'll just pay back the partner, no problem. Yeah. Of course, there were nothing, nothing like that ever happened. And uh, it did lose uh, me in the collapse of several partners. But I, I did know of, of a partner that collapsed where uh, people were told to invest. I think it was either in soap or cosmetics, and they're all going to make a lot of money. And of course, the, the money never materialized from the very overpriced soap and led to the collapse of partners. I've been going around for a long, long time. And of course, lots of recriminations, and there was lots of toing and froing going to people's houses, demanding payment yeah. or at least something yeah. in lieu of the payment, yeah. sometimes a television yeah. or something. It led to a lot of problems. So, I think that part of the book was very realistic. And that's what happens in desperate times. People sometimes let the logical part of their brain take a back seat because either desperation or greed takes over. If you think yeah, about yeah. it, right, logically, right, you've got no alternative. Because if the regular, if the legitimate banks won't give you a finance whatever this style of business, right, what other option is available to you? you yeah, do absolutely. Like this or, or turn to crime, which a lot of people did. I think that, that, that I think that was what most immigrant groups find the difficulty is getting because you don't have a credit record or the banks at the time didn't trust you. Certainly, my, my parents never had any sort of credit because they, you just couldn't obtain credit. Yeah. I think the nearest they got to credit was a John Moore's catalog where you yeah. paid off every week. That was the nearest that you would come to it uh, because the banking system, etc., it, it made it very difficult at the time. I think laws were introduced to make credit far easier but the idea that uh, anybody could buy a new car on hp was impossible certainly the partner helped a lot of people but i got a feeling uh, through ralph's book you you'd know that you also probably helped a lot of the wrong sort of people yeah <laughs> get on with some of the more nefarious schemes yeah. so right there's at the time right there's a lot of scams going around at the time let me tell you a little story have another scam i was at a good friend's house uh, one day, uh, it's a good friend in which I went to school with from the age of kindergarten or nursery, as you call it, right up until the secondary school. There was a knock on his front door. He went to have a look. He turned white shade then you done, okay, and Thank ran you. back and uh, it, it pleaded with me to please tell these guys that he's not there. Me like a fool, go to the front door, opens the door. Two of the biggest hell's angels I've ever seen stood in front of me, okay? Demanding to know where my friend is. Me, shitting myself, right? I had to think quickly and pretend and ask them to let me know where he is, where he is because the little bastard owes me money, okay? And when they find out, please tell me because I want to collect my money off them. I'm mentioning that, they become a lot relaxed and they started to converse with me normally. So they, I, I built up the courage to ask them what 
he had done to them. In which they replied, he went to them to buy a car. And they let him test drive this car. Partway through his test drive, he sold it to somebody else. Wow. And these people turned up right for their money. Now, if I hadn't thought quickly, I'm convinced I, would, I wouldn't be here today because these guys meant business. But that's just one of the things, one of the sort of scams that went on at the time. I won't say this is a this was a common scam because obviously you'd be once if you got caught, you're gone, you know? Over the next few weeks, we'll be covering a wide range of topics, all relating to discrimination within the Black community, homophobia, misogyny, etc., etc. Make sure to join our Facebook group, More Than a Game, or perhaps visit our website at www.ralphrob.com. If you have questions or comments, email us at ralph at ralphrob.com. I'm Kimberly Ravando Rob, and I am signing out. Signing out.